Holy Gospel according to John, chapter 14. Glory to you, O Lord. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. We are going to look in kind of Bible study fashion today at two of our readings for this Pentecost Sunday, starting with that first reading from Genesis 11, which I want to first of all talk to you about by talking about its context, which is that Genesis 11 is at the very end of a section from Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, which at the very beginning of the Bible actually sets the stage for the entire rest of the whole big picture Bible story. You may or may not know that they are there, but in Genesis 1 to 11, you do know some of the stories that are there because you've heard some of them. Some of them you first heard in Sunday school, stories like God creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh day, and the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the forbidden fruit on the one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat, and so of course they did. <coughs> and the innocence of paradise of Eden is lost, and the story of God's creation goes dramatically downhill from there until it reaches bottom, and another Sunday school story, although we don't quite teach some of its bottomness, when we teach it in Sunday school, that being the story of a man named Noah, who was go, told to go and build an ark. All of these stories in this section of Genesis 1 to 11, an interpretive comment about reading these stories in Genesis 1 to 11. I want to tell you that I don't think there is anything anywhere that has ever been written that is any more deeply true than the stories of Genesis 1 to 11 provided. You don't squeeze the life out of their depth with the assumption that the deepest truths that can be expressed must be expressed literally. Jesus, of course, showed us this. Again and again, whenever he wanted to teach us the deepest trees he could, what did he do? He told stories, parables, 
which were and which remain deeply true, and which were and which remain close, close, close to the heart of God, but which, of course, were never meant to be understood literally, for to do so would so diminish them. So too, Genesis 1 to 11, and these well-known stories, which, I mean, you can disagree, and that's fine, but I don't think they were ever intended by the Bible to be literal scientific accounts of the origin of the world or the origin of the species. Those are science questions, and the Bible's first priority is not to be a science book. The Bible's first 11 chapters, rather, tell a different type of story and a deeper type of story, which is not the story of precisely scientifically how we came to be, but rather the story of things like who we are and why we are and why so many things. I mean, look around, you see it yourself. So many things about God's creation surely aren't the way they are meant to be by God. Because why? Because we are intended as created by God for the purpose of living in faith and love and obedience to God. But remember the story in Eden of the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, don't eat it. And so Adam and Eve said, absolutely, we're going to eat it. It's a story that points to this truth about us humans. Giving the choice of obeying God or being our own gods. Hey, please pass the apples. I want to be my own damned God. In Genesis 1 to 11, people choosing to be their own gods rather than pursuing and obeying the purposes of, and desires of their creator God creates the godless mess in which then is told in some details that we overlook in Sunday school, the story of Noah and of his ark, where God launches, if you will, a reboot, a creation 2.0, starting over in creation, not now with Adam and Eve and their family, but with Noah and his family. The reboot, however, proves not to be virus-free either. As the story essentially repeats itself, as humans after Noah choose all over again not to lovingly obey God, but to want to be their own gods. Which takes us to this reading from Genesis 11, the end of this section, not quite as well known in Sunday school telling, where it says that all humans at this point are in one place, which, let's be clear, in their hearts and minds and souls they truly are, and it's not a good place. And it says they all speak the same language, which, let's be clear, in their hearts and minds and souls they truly do. It's just that the language is the very coarse language of hubris. And speaking that same language, the language of the gods, they come up with this same plan. Let us build a tower to the heavens. That is to say what? That is to say, let's build something of ours, something of us that is as high as are the heights of God. 
And then what? Then let's build a name for ourselves. And God in heaven says to God's maybe here triune self, we need to go down and put a stop to this because this isn't good. And so God goes to where the people are building their self-aggrandizing tower to the glory of they themselves. And God confuses their languages so they can no longer understand each other and they stop building their monument to the greatness of them and they scatter. And the place from which they scattered in confusion is called Babel. By the way, in both Hebrew and English, Babel is a play on words that is intentional. Now you could read this story as though God is actually kind of, I don't know, petty here. That God feels threatened by God's heavenly turf being encroached upon. It's not what's going on here. You know what is going on here? You'll never guess. It's grace of all things. For yes, certainly for sure, God sees humans in their self-aggrandizing ways posing a threat here, but it's not a threat to God. I mean, as if, right? The threat posed by humanity is a threat to humanity itself and even to creation itself. So God scatters them from their plans. They're prideful all about themselves' plans to save humanity from itself and to save creation from humanity's hubris. Building their towers, they're not taking care of the earth the way God had commanded them to. Hmm. Is this an old story? Or was it written maybe yesterday? I mean, selfish and self-aggrandizing self-interest, which are threats which God knows are threatening. Threatening to others, threatening to ourselves, threatening even to the planet itself. And confusion, confusion wrapped in so much babbling. My goodness, this old story isn't old at all, right? It's as contemporary as can be. And it's also as true as can be in the telling of this truth. If we set our souls on nothing higher than the accomplishment of our own wills and our own greatness for our own sakes, rather than seeking to obey God and live according to the will of God, and in so doing proclaiming God's greatness for God's sake, our greatest threat will not be found outside of us. It will rather be us, found right there, not beyond, but within the borders of our own hearts and minds and souls. Back to Genesis. Immediately after this Tower of Babel story, the Bible's big picture story turns from what many regard as kind of this humanity prehistory to something more grounded in history and actually historical people and actual geographical places by turning to the story of an actual man named Abraham and his actual wife named Sarah. And God's creation 
having ended up with sinners in paradise lost and the world flooded in its sin, and creation 2.0, having ended up with sinners sinning and the world a babbling mess as a result of the division of sin, God reveals to Abraham that God's not giving up on sinners, but rather will now reach with blessing and healing two sinners through the flesh and blood descendants of Abraham and Sarah, who would become known as the children of Israel. Later they would become known as the Jews, and their story is the story of the entire rest of the Old Testament. Until 2,000 years passes, and a young Jewish couple have a son, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah, and they're told to name him Jesus, which means God saves, for he, angels said, will save humanity from its sin. Which, according to the Bible's New Testament, he accomplished not with prideful looks down his nose in judgment upon sinners, but by rather on a cross submitting to the judgment of sinners. Their judgment being death to the likes of him. And submitting too to the judgment of God upon sin. God's judgment being to hell with that. Then to rise again from death and even the hell of sin. To usher in a new kingdom where God is God. And where Jesus is Lord. And we're sinners. The sinners who've been sinning their way out of paradise ever since Adam and Eve are now, by grace, by God, forgiven all the way home. Go into the world, he told his closest followers right before he left for home, and share the good news of all that I have done for this world that God hasn't given up on. Tell the world, he said, tell all people in all creation that in me sinners are forgiven and the dead are raised and the babbled are set free. And what they are set free by is the truth of God's grace and God's love. But wait, he said. And he said this right before he left to return back to the Father. He said this on the 40th day after Easter. We could go Thursday if we're counting. Wait, he said, until you are clothed with power from on high. Power which will empower you for your purpose to take the good news to this whole babbling world. And they did wait for 10 more days. Till came the 50th day of Easter. This is the 50th day of Easter. Which was a Jewish religious holiday, the day of Pentecost, and Jews from all over the world, speaking their own languages from all over the world, came to Jerusalem for the feast. And that's when it happened. Acts 2, where the disciples commanded to take the word to the world, but waiting, as they'd also been commanded, for the power to live out their purpose, are all together in one place, except this time they're not building a high tower to the heavens, but rather are praying together in that upper room. 
They're not trying to be gods who command their own commands, but they rather are waiting upon God in obedience to Jesus' command. And that's when a sound comes. It's the sound of a mighty wind. The Greek word you should know that is here translated as wind is all elsewhere, including in this, trans this, this chapter, translated accurately as breath. Also can be translated as spirit. And so it is that with the sound of a powerful wind that the power of the Holy Spirit, the holy wind, the holy breath, is poured out upon Jesus' followers then, seeming to their eyes to look like, to look like tongues, human tongues, tongues made of fire. Fire, you should know, throughout Scripture over and over again is understood to mean God is in the house and descended upon and empowered by the fiery breath of God's in-the-house spirit, the disciples say, Come, let us build a tower to the heavens, and let us build a great name for ourselves. Oops, no, wrong story. Descended upon and empowered by the fiery breath of God's present and oh-so-holy spirit, all of them in different languages, these languages being the different languages which all these different people around from the earth can understand, which presumably would have been its own kind of babbling confusion. Except that it wasn't. Because why? Because in all those different human languages, the disciples now were actually speaking one and the same divine language. As in different tongues, the language they all spoke was the language of God's saving love for the world, made known in the flesh and blood and words and actions and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back to Genesis 11, and people united in their desire to make a name for themselves, to make themselves great. And God confuses their languages to save them from themselves. But now comes Acts 2, where people, all of whom do speak different languages, now hear in their own language the greatness of God and the Lordship of Christ, who came to save not himself, but all through the forgiveness of sin. Babylon that day sees its reversal and the beginning of its end. Not because everyone then speaks the same language again. We're the ones who think people only need to speak the same language. But because by the power of God's Spirit, empowering the purpose of Christ's newborn church, all hear the greatness of the one God of all spoken in a language that is called Jesus. The Word made flesh and Lord of all, which of course is the language above all of God's love for all. Sisters and brothers, there is Genesis 11, and the news each and every day since then, and babbling pride and confusion, telling all of their stories, all in different dialects of the same language, the language being the language of the greatness of me and the greatness of us. But two, there's the greatest story ever told, the old, old, but ever new story of Jesus and his love. And it's Pentecost. And we are the church gathered in this room in worship and in prayer, and still there remains 
The Christ commanded purpose of the church. Go into the world. Go outside of the walls. Tell the good news. A Pentecost Day question. In this babbling world, who, by words, or by deeds, by listening, or by loving, by caring, by sharing, by serving, or by inviting, who, in a language they can understand, is the wind or the whisper of the Spirit today urging and empowering you to tell the old, old, yet ever new story of Jesus and his love too. Because why? Because we're Christ's church and the babble remains confusing and dividing and the world needs Jesus and his love. Amen.